You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount. Would you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? <clears throat> and even though we're going to be just looking at one verse, verse 6, I want to you know, kind of go back to verse 3 so that we can continue to see the progression of the Beatitudes that Jesus speaks in this opening part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this together? It begins, beginning in verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And verse 6, finally, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I ask as we look to your word this morning that you would help us, Lord, to not only understand what the text is saying, but Lord, more importantly, to understand what it says to us each individually, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, Lord, you give us receptive hearts and minds so that what we hear here could make a difference and express itself in real, tangible ways through our lives. We ask this of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Although we understand that the idea of being born again or coming to that new birth in Christ is a, an instantaneous event, it's not something that takes place necessarily over a long period of time. I mean, you ask Christ into your heart and you are born again in that moment if you ask in faith and in sincerity. But just like human birth, there's a gestation period. There's this time in which our faith develops and brings us to that moment of decision. Uh, and really when that moment comes is a consequence of a kind of a growing, gnawing awareness deep on the inside of us that there is something missing. That you may be the most successful person in the world and you have everything at your fingertips, every ambition, every appetite, and you've been able to establish personal autonomy in the world. And yet at the end of that journey, you'll look at yourself one day and saying, something's missing. There's a, there's a void in my life. In fact, it was uh, the uh, mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal who once said that there's an internal echo inside of every soul. He said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God. In other words, God has created us with that vacuum that we cannot avoid coming to that moment of questioning the whole meaning and purpose of my life because God created us with that question mark in the middle of our soul from the very moment of our conception within our mother's wombs. Similarly, we find Augustine related it to being an inner restlessness, and he, writing in the fifth century, said, you have made us for yourself, speaking of God. Therefore, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So again, an inner echo, an inner restlessness, that there's this churning on the inside. In short, what these men were telling us is that God brings us to this point of what we often call personal crisis, or we like to refer to in, in the church as the crisis of conversion, that moment when the inner emptiness and restlessness of a soul that is living separated from God literally comes to a point of being unbearable. This ever-increasing sense of what I call soulish inadequacy 
was ascribed by Jesus in the Beatitudes that we've just read. In fact, I would basically paraphrase them by saying, Jesus saying, blessed are those who are discontent in realizing that they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who have been broken and crushed by life. Blessed are those who, because of these things, have just given up on themselves and have surrendered themselves to God. And now, fourthly, he said, blessed are those who crave for something more than what this life can give to them. They desire and yearn for something that truly satisfies. He said that these who come to this moment are those who through the, enter through the gateway that leads to Christ's kingdom, that lead to Christ's comfort, who find that soul-fulfilling satisfaction that they're looking for in life. But such kind of words really kind of fly in the face of our current postmodernist or even as some call post-Christian era. We see human history moves from the superstition of the ancients and their idols to the religion of the Middle Ages until today we have this new kind of religious thought and movement. In fact, author Mike Sayers in his, in his book, The uh, Disappearing Church, summarized it basically as an attempt to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting on its fruits. So in other words, Christianity laid this foundation which led to a fruitfulness of Western culture and now men want to feast on that fruitfulness, but they don't want to have to care for the soil and the roots that created it. He goes on saying, attempting to retain the solace of faith, or that comfort of faith, while gutting it of its costs, its commitments, and its restraints. Post-Christianity, he continues, intuitively yearns for the justice and the peace of the kingdom of God while defending the reign of the will of the individual. He goes on to comment, it's a gospel that has essentially been emptied of its content. It's what Paul described as a desertion. He says in Galatians 1, 6, he says they have deserted to a different gospel, and he adds, which is really no gospel at all. They've left the good news for something they call the good news, but in fact, it is not good news at all. Sayer continues and said, it is the elevation of self above God, an increasing obsession with the self and with the personal development, the preference of spirituality over religion, therapy over fellowship with a transcendent God, one that believes in no creeds except for the creed that there is no creed other than the creed of self. In short, we are in pursuit of the beautiful world with a constant and never-ending array of options, temptations, and tantalizing choices, a cornucopia of, of bounty. And then he says something I think is really quite profound. It's something that caresses even as it corrodes. It caresses even as it corrodes. What a way of describing the concurrent and contemporary culture. It caresses us, and we love that caress with all of its comfort, with all of its bounty, with all of its warmth, and yet at the same time, as we sit being caressed by it, we fail to recognize that something deep inside of us is being eroded and corroded away. 
What it does is it's created a, a world full of irony and contradictions because we're attempting to live our lives separated from the very source of life itself. We're like a luxuriant tree that has been uprooted and lies there without root. We are at both the same time flourishing and yet somehow inside we are also withering away. Never before has mankind had more, done more, experienced more, and yet at the same time felt so incredibly empty. <clears throat> we live longer, we live healthier, we live safer, and yet we're frightened, we're afraid, and we're unsatisfied. We're incessantly driven by an economy that relentlessly stimulates our appetites and our ambitions while promising to us total autonomy and freedom from all of the weights and the responsibilities and the problems and the things that trouble life. That in short, what we've done is we've ensconced personal happiness as our God. That when you talk to people and saying, what do you really want out of life? And that is to be happy. Even though if you press them to say, what is your definition of happiness, you'll get rather glib and cliche answers because they're really not certain what it looks like or feels like because they're not sure they have ever known it or experienced it, but they are in hot, earnest pursuit of it. And so we find people pursuing careers that they may not like, but they think that it will make them healthy, wealthy, and wise. They indebt themselves to colleges beyond any hope of ever re recouping themselves from their debt, just simply because there's this promise out here that if you get this piece of paper, not only you will ensure that your professors will have a great retirement, but you also will become wealthy, healthy, and wise. Although there aren't many people searching for employees with poetry degrees. I think in light of all this, it it's how, seems so simplistic. How simplistic the words of Jesus sound in a world of worrying change and promises of unlimited progress. What has developed within Christianity, and this is what we have to keep in mind, that the church doesn't live separate from the culture. I mean, the church tries to live at times separate from a culture, and they create communities that are cut off from the culture, but in time they become their own culture. We create what I like to refer to as selfie Christianity. And I say that with some degree of frustration because I have tried to take selfies but my phone has an inherent weakness in it. It can only capture what's in front of it. And every time, every angle, I realize that my arms aren't long enough, and my wife said, you will never buy a selfie stick, at, stick while I'm still alive. So I can't really get enough distance or angle, and even the apps that promise to kind of blur and make me look better than what I do don't work. Only thing that works is Snapchat, and that makes me look like a mouse or a cow or a dog. I have no hope of repairing this. But as I was contemplating this in the midst of my deep and painful frustration, I started realizing that there's a generational difference about selfie taking. That when I see people in my generation and older, they take pictures of their friends and their family together. Let's get a picture of all of us. And they smartly hand it to the waitress. <laughs> you know, 
And in some cases, they even get them in frame. It's amazing. But then I look at, you know, my generation, and I try to take a selfie with my wife and I, or with my wife and one of the kids, or grandkids. But more and more as I look at the Instagrams that I get from my, uh, my grandkids, they send me multiple copies of fashion shots that they've taken in various locations around their home. And they're really good and they're really attractive, but you're struck with this idea that the projection of an image that is beautiful has become almost obsessive. That the more attractive we become, the less satisfied we are. And I think about the church today, and it, it is really kind of a selfie kind of Christianity, because when you ask people about their relationship with God, it almost always immediately races towards what God hasn't done for them yet, how he's let them down, how he's not enough, and why he hasn't blessed them adequately. Rare is it to talk to a Christian who says, God is doing a a powerful, albeit painful, work in my life right now, but as I decrease, he is increasing in my life. To say that in many quarters of Christianity today is almost like speaking a strange language. It's the language that has been the language of the church from the earliest days, and yet is no longer a language that we hear today. But the truth of the matter is that we live in a world that I describe as suffering from an epidemic of unhappiness. <laughs> Little did the aged rocker Mick Jagger know that what he said in his 30s would resonate in the souls and the minds and the hearts of people like me in my 60s, our 70s, our 80s, when he said, I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no. <laughs> no, no, no. I can't get no satisfaction. I loved it when I saw him doing that in the Super Bowl and he got his microphone cord caught in his wheelchair. It was a <laughs> But in a way, we are becoming like that silly person that Paul spoke about in 2 Timothy 3, 7, when he said they're led captive by every changing impulse. In other words, we, we just kind of are taken away or carried away by whatever happens to be the the it thing at the moment that we're in. That we're always anxious to learn something new, some new technique that falls, comes before us that, you know, I look at the commercials, the advertisements, the things that I can do to stay forever young. Forever, he said, following new teachings, but never, ever able to arrive at the truth. I remember a friend of mine telling me once, he said, the hardest thing for me about giving my life to Christ was giving up my search for truth. <laughs> my life would be defined by being a truth seeker, but when I found the truth, it meant that I had to give up my entire life's career and purpose <laughs> and began to live within the truth. It is easier to seek the truth than to live within the truth because when you live within the truth, it is constantly showing you how much untruth exists on the inside of you. In fact, it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn who after his years in the Russian gulag in Siberia wrote that he said he discovered that the line that separates good and evil passes not through states, 
not between classes, nor between political parties, but it passes right through the heart of every man and woman. He said it is the evil that's inside each and every one of us. That when you become a person who begins to live within the truth, the toughest thing, the hardest thing, the most difficult thing is to allow that truth to peer into the areas of untruth in your own life that we would all, myself included, be so content to leave unaddressed. I wonder, if is, it, is it because we're flooded by a, a, a media tsunami of incessant promises? Promises of perfect bodies or perfect health or perfect relationships? That we spend our time and our hard-earned money being clipped and lipoed and nipped and suctioned and shaped and tatted, and soon enough we'll be chipped so they can identify us? Striving to age but being forever young? coddled by every convenience and by every comfort. Yet, as I said before, most of Americans are, could be described as epidemically unhappy. 80% of us take some form of prescription medication. 25% of us suffer from mental illness. That's what the psychiatrists say. And uh, they should know because they're as mad as a hatter. <laughs> 20% of Americans take some form of psychotropic drug to deal with anxiety and depression. 11 to 12% of us suffer from severe or acute depression. And the death rate by suicide is doubling almost every year, especially amongst young people. Not even just teens now, it's even in the those who are still in eight, nine, ten years of age. Confronted by the rea reality that few of us in our life will ever possess that promised perfection, we seek to escape our, our sense of meaninglessness and the accompanying yearning for the metaphysical, for the spiritual. We immerse ourselves in limitless series of cooking shows and discount airfares, smartphones and online shopping and celebrity gossip and 24-hour-a-day breaking news, which if you spend enough time watching it, you begin to discover it's pretty much the same story given by a different face every hour. But when these things no longer numb us, we addict ourselves to something else whether it be drugs or alcohol or gambling or, or uh, porn or opioids or even hoarding, we begin to addict ourselves by the accumulation of whatever we think we can gather to somehow numb that, that desperate emptiness that we feel on in the inside. And we start measuring our place in this world and our worth by what we have done and what we have accomplished in such oddities. And then we have like the things like the event in Las Vegas. And Americans are deeply conflicted about Stephen Paddock's behavior, his murderous rampage over innocent people. And we're desperately looking to find what is the motive, what is the motive, what is the motive? And the more they've studied this man's life, the less they find. 
In fact, he is a guy who bought into all the promises. He became independently wealthy beyond most of our dreams. He fed every appetite that he could possibly identify in himself so that he indulged himself to the extreme. He accomplished through his ambitions things that you and I can only imagine. And he was totally autonomous. Nobody told Stephen Paddock what to do or where to go or when to do it. He was imperious. He was belittling and dominating. He was in control and he was in charge. And he had so much money, nobody would dare question him. And we look at this man who we'd say, he got it all. Every appetite filled, every ambition accomplished, every degree of autonomy we could imagine having. He possessed all of these things. Why did he do this? And we can't make it out in our minds. We can't add it up because we have been convinced by our culture that if you can do these things, you are happy. And can I suggest to you what my opinion is? I think after being unsatisfied by all those things and still feeling like his life was an empty shell, he decided I will do the one thing that will mark my name in history. I'll go out in a blaze of glory. I will be known as the biggest mass murderer in the history of America. What he was looking to was fill the emptiness that was deep inside his soul. The heart that is an inner echo created by God that can only be filled by a relationship with God. And here's the tragedy, I think. The inability of the society to understand that. We can't get our minds around that kind of evil because to do that we have to admit something to ourselves. That that same evil lives inside of us. And if we were given the kind of success in life that we think we need in order to be happy, we might very well end up doing something similar. Because when you come to the end of it, you're only left with one of two things, either God or death. And Stephen Paddock apparently chose death. And the sad thing is, We've become a culture that strains at gnats and we swallow camels. Because we grieve over the death of 58 innocent people and so we should. But at the same moment we grieve over that, we feel no emotion for the 910 unborn children that were murdered by Planned Parenthood every day. Every day, every day, 365. We feel no qualm about the 60 million children that have been boarded. And I say this understanding that statistically, 20% of the women in this room have had an abortion. And I don't say that to be cruel. But do we really believe that we can sow that much to the whirlwind, to the wind and not reap the whirlwind? That as we sit back and say, what is wrong with this country? Take a selfie. Take a selfie. I am what's wrong with this country. 
And it is only as we come to that place of saying, God, I crave something different than what this world can give me, that we have any hope of redemption. Theologian Henry LeBac said, the great things with which, without which there is no humanity, spirit, reason, liberty, truth, brotherhood, justice, he said they quickly become unreal when they are no longer seen as a radiation from God. In other words, when we fail to realize that all of those good things do not radiate out of human nature, but they radiate from the heart of God, that we are touched by them and we respond to them as we are touched. And the more deeply those things touch us, the more deeply we are willing to touch other people because we're freed from the rat race of self-indulgence. That's why the prophet Isaiah 2,700 years ago wrote in a, to a similarly confused and distracted nation saying, why do you spend money and your labor on what does not satisfy? He says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, hear me that your souls may live. Jesus similarly said in, in Matthew 11 when he invited anyone, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But in that very promise, we, we encounter the struggle. I don't want to be yoked. I want to be free. I want to be free to live my life the way I deem my life can best be lived. I want to be free to craft my own career and my own ambition. I want to live where I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. I want to accomplish what I want to accomplish. I want to love those whom I want to love and feel no pressure to love those whom I do not. But Jesus is telling us in a very, very revolutionary way. He says, fulfillment is not found in being full or famous and fabulous or even being free. Fulfillment is in being found, in being found by God. It's not in being autonomous, it's in being accountable, accountable to God, not being free but yoked to Christ. That like the oxen of old, I was born to bear the yoke, to pull the plow, to submit to the other, and to come under the mastery of my Savior. Yet it is the yoke that we most want to avoid. And that's where we're told that the fulfillment is found. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those, the way I'd paraphrase it, filled with joy are those who are craving for the real, for the right, for the true, and the completing relationship that can be only found with God. Blessed are those who have felt such a depth of deprivation in their own soul that they hunger for anything else. William Barclay said of this, he said, this is no genteel hunger that could be satisfied with a mid-morning snack. 
The thirst of which it speaks is not a thirst that could be slaked with a cup of coffee or an iced tea. It is the hunger of the man who is starving for food and the thirst of man who will die unless he drinks. This is the man or woman that is driven to the point of near madness because of the unrelenting craving of finding greater meaning than just simply responding to their own appetites, their own ambitions, and their own desires for autonomy. They've turned from the God of self, the God of their own making, if you will, to the God of the Bible. Their experience is a lot like what the Lord said Israel would go through when they turned away from him. When he wrote in Deuteronomy 4, prophetically, before they even got a chance to do it, he said, this is what you're gonna do. That they would worship idols, he said, made of wood and stone, which is so nonsensical because he says they cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot eat, or they cannot smell. But he goes on says, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. In other words, taking the same intensity of focus that I have placed upon the things of this life, and I turn that intensity away from those things and place it on seeking God. Then he says, you'll find the thing that you're looking for. The intensity is not the problem. The energy is not your failing. It's the fact that you are applying it in the wrong way. In the same way that a, a gun can be something of good, it's just a matter of what it's pointed at as to whether it's good or evil. When nothing else works and we've come to the end of ourselves, we're only left again with the choice between God and death. It's not just a dynamic for Stephen Paddock, it's a dynamic that faces us all, that, that I have a choice when I come to the end of myself, am I gonna choose God or am I gonna choose death? And God says, turn because I would not have you die. It's at that point when we turn to God that we understand what Job was saying when he wrote in, in Job 23. He said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. It's that point where nobody has to remind me to read my Bible or just to spend time contemplatively praying to God and conversing with him. No one has to tell you or instruct you. You don't need a, a checklist because you have come to treasure the words of his mouth more than you do your necessary food. I would ask you to think to yourself, what animates your thoughts when you first awake at the beginning of each day? What animates your thoughts? We become like David who declared in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. I was reading one contemporary translation, it says, as the white tail seeks the waters of the creek. And I thought to myself, you've just blurred the picture. <laughs> because it's a picture of the forests of the Northwest. No, the picture here is of the deserts of Judea, where water is hard and scarce and more precious than gold or any treasure. 
And when the deer finds the water, he has come to the point where he is panting from total dehydration and he soaks it up as life itself because in that moment it has become the elixir of life from which he, if he departs, he cannot escape. That's the moment when we pray like David and as he's confronted with the reality of his own decrepit sin and says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. The pure heart there literally means an undivided heart. Create in me a heart that isn't trying to move in two directions at the same time. I learned, I had to admit to myself finally that, you know, I'm not good at multitasking. I know some of you think you are. I know that when I multitask, I do one or more things very poorly. If I want to be good at something, I have to block everything out and say, wait a minute, let me, let me finish with this, and then I will move on to the next thing. I thought it was just an evidence of senility, but there are other things that I can point to in my life that prove that. But it's the idea of the divided mind, the divided heart, the divided focus, the, the heart that we talked about when we were going through James, the double-minded man who wants to serve God, but at the same time wants to feed his appetites, his ambitions, and his autonomy. And there is nobody more miserable <laughs> in life than to have a knowledge of God and yet know that you're kind of ignoring the knowledge of God. But it's when we come to that place that the psalmist said, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. Blessed is the man who says, my refuge, my place of safety, my place of hiding, my place of covering and protection is in the Lord. That's what I look to. That's what I pursue and strive after. Blessed is that man because he has tasted of God. Then and only then do we understand what Asaph was talking about when he said in Psalm 73, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. It's when you come to this place where you've bought all the new cars, you've built your dream house, you've proven your worth through your career and your work, and you're secure and everything is set aside and you realize that I can kind of take my life at its ease. That even if God didn't mess with that, and he always seems to, <laughs> but even if he didn't, there would still come that haunting inner emptiness that says, is this it? <laughs> is this it? It's like deciding that I'm just going to set the timer for my own demise and just watch it as it ticks my life away. And I can say to myself, well, I could do so many other things. Why waste the time? I'm going to go fulfill my bucket list. I think there was a movie about that, right? <laughs> but at the end of the day, a bucket list is just a bucket full of stuff. And it doesn't matter how full your bucket is or how shallow your bucket is, it never changes. It's still just a bucket.
I guess my question for you simply is this. In what ways or do you feel like this describes you? <laughs> what, is the, what is the driving craving in your life? What is the thing that you crave for most? And I don't want to sit up here and pretend that I've never caught myself craving things that I shouldn't be craving. I mean, I just walked through the foyer. <laughs> feel like saying, can I just give you money? <laughs> If I give you money, will I lose five pounds? <laughs> will that work? I, it's just like, I'm sorry, you know, it's like, uh, lead us not into temptation. But Eve, I mean, the more serious thing, I crave the affirmation and the approbation and all the kind of things that you crave. And sometimes when I have sleepless nights or troubled days because I don't feel like I'm being approved of or people like me. I keep on telling myself as I'm taking the selfie, doggone it, I'm smart, I'm good looking, and people like me. Somehow that never gets captured in the picture. And I don't want to sit up here and pretend like I, I don't battle these things. I don't battle the, the cravings that, that other people battle. I do every day, just like you. But there comes a point, hopefully, in our journey with Christ that we are constantly reminded by the willing and, and invited presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. We invite his presence into our life, and every time he comes, he speaks and says, but there is something far more satisfying than the smell of a new car. There's something more satisfying than that home that has that drop-dead view there's something better than that vacation that is the end of all vacations. There's something better than that job full of status and career and the rewards that come with it. There's something better, something that your soul is craving, and more important than any of those things, there's this thing called a relationship with God, an intimacy with God. And I know many of us have experienced it. Those times when we are in the most unwelcoming of circumstances, the most unfriendly place. I can simply tell you about times when I was in, in the jungles of India and it was a 110 degrees with 95% humidity and I can't drink the water because it'll make me sicker than I already am so I can only drink hot tea and bananas and coconut and I'm lonely and I'm depressed and I'm jet lagged and even in those moments where I felt like this would be a good place to die. When my heart drew close to God, I found contentment. I found peace. I found that the one thing that I have been looking for my entire life was right there in front of me. To be in fellowship with God to have God present in that moment. I remember one particular occasion, I was actually flying out of India the next day, and as I was sitting in this, these people who were invited me to dinner at their home, <clears throat> suddenly I felt ill, and I excused myself from the table, and I went into their restroom, which was a squat toilet. If you don't know what a squat toilet is, it's a hole in the ground, it has foot pads that are in the, in the masonry, which you can put your feet in to help you aim correctly. And all of a sudden, 
everything that was inside of me started coming out of any orifice I had in my body. <laughs> I mean, I diarrhea on one end and vomiting on the other and tears and sinuses draining and everything that could drain was draining. All was left was to slip my wrists and I would have been done with it, which was becoming a very attractive option at that particular moment. I remember laying there in my face and saying, God, just kill me. <laughs> just take me right now. I'm ready to go. Because food poisoning, if you've had it, and many of us have, is a very unfriendly experience. I remember as I was laying there and praying and suddenly God said, just rebuke the devil. Okay, Lord rebuke you, Satan. <laughs> it all stopped. I thought, whoa, what was that all about? <laughs> that was a spiritual attack. I'll add to you that I was deeply exhausted. And you know, when you go through something like that, you know how God always responds. Every, from that point on, everything is wonderful. Except when I got to the airport at four o'clock in the morning, they didn't have a seat on the plane for me and my companions, and finally they worked out. They found me in my seat in the back of the plane. In those days, we had the smoking section. And so for the next nine hours, I flew to Frankfurt and, and I had people smoking like chimneys all around me. And thankfully, I got to Frankfurt, and I got on the next flight for another nine-hour flight in the same seat, in the same smoking section, and I thought the Indians smoked a lot. You've never seen a German smoke until you've seen, I mean, anybody smoke like a German. I mean, it was like the guy next to me was nonstop the entire nine hours. He smoked one cigarette after another. I got off the plane, finally landed in Seattle. My eyes were all bloodshot. I'm exhausted physically, mentally. But there's something about being with God in the midst of all of that ugliness that's impossible to explain. Because you taste of the Lord and you see that he's good. And you don't say, well, I'll never do that again. The only thing I ever succeeded in doing was scaring my wife out of ever going with me. But let me ask you a couple of questions that maybe will help you to figure out where you're at in this process. Number one, is there something you have decided you will never do for God? I think about Moses, how God says, I want you to go speak to my people. You know that five times Moses told God no? <laughs> five is the number of grace. That's probably why he didn't die soon after that. Although at one point when he finally went, God had to strike him down and almost kill him to just get him to be obedient to what he wanted. He kept on saying, no God, no God, no God, no God. And you know why? Because he says, I lack the necessary oratorial, oratorical skills to be able to uh, talk to Pharaoh. And, and it's interesting how God says, I just want you to go. Don't worry about the words, just go. To be like Abraham who packed up everything and went to a place he didn't know. Now one of the things we're not told in the text, how long it told, took Abraham to get to the place where he was willing to go. We talk about heading the land of Canaan when he's 75 years ago, age. I wonder sometimes, maybe he was 23 when God first told him to go, I don't know. But in the end, he finally went where God told him to go. The secondly, is there something you won't do for God? Are you like Jonah? I'm not, I'm not gonna go preach to those Ninevites. 
No way. I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not having that conversation. I'm not telling them I'm a Christian. I'm not telling them I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not telling them that if they don't accept Jesus Christ in their heart, they're going to go to hell. I'm not going to tell them that their lifestyle is an abomination in the sight of God. No way, Jose or Jesus. Or is there someone you won't love, won't forgive, or won't serve for God? You see, what hungry and thirsting comes down to is simply an unrelenting pursuit of God. Paul described it this way in writing to the Philippians. He said, whatever was to my profit, in other words, whatever was the advantage that I had in life, and he was born with a number of advantages, you know, wealthy family, well-placed, great position, great income. I mean, he, he was a guy who had all the accoutrements of success that you could possibly want before he became a follower of Jesus. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for Christ. In other words, I realize now it was an obstacle between me and what God wanted to do in my life. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I don't have time to explain it to you, but you have to understand that when Paul says all things, he's talking about not only position, he's not talking about power, he's not just talking about possessions, he's talking about a wife and children. He's talking about being counted dead by his family. He loses everything. And he says, I, but I, for whose sake I have lost things, he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. That is a, an accomplishment that I can point to and say I'm a valuable person. Without having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then he said, here's, here's my passion life. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection Keep in mind, in order to know the power of the resurrection, you also have to know the reality of death. Paul said, I die daily. He says, every day I die. And it, as I die every day, and as I decrease, he increases, and I get to understand the lower I go, the more he lifts me up. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Fellowship, sharing, and sufferings are three words that I would never put in the same sentence. becoming like him in his death. And again, we miss the meaning of that because the death that Christ died was the most shameful, humiliating. In fact, in polite Roman society, you never brought up crucifixion. It was something that you should never refer to. It's so shameful and so lowly and disgusting. In fact, it was forbidden for a Roman citizen to ever be crucified. That was reserved for non-Romans, for slaves, for our enemies. He says, but I want to become like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, 
I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. We might simply say it's living in the light of eternity and not in the shadows of time. I think that the Christian church today has been sabotaged by the idea that we need to be relevant to the culture that we're in. <laughs> As Os Guinness put it one time, he says, there's no quicker path to irrelevance than striving to be relevant. What should be my goal? Is it my goal to be irrelevant? No, but I want to be relevant in a way that matters. And the most relevant thing in the world is God. The most relevant thing I can do is to live for Him and as I live for Him, I find that He gives me ways that I can relate to people who are struggling with their own journey of irrelevance. As my wife and I go through these family movies that she's digitizing, it is, it is amazing. <laughs> because as we're watching this thing about, here are people in the height of their coolness in 1956 and 1966, and 1986. <laughs> and we look at them and go, what Nimrods. <laughs> what, oh, they're, oh, gosh, oh, my goodness. Look at that. Oh, my, look at that hair. Look at that hair. <laughs> there can be a whole colony of bees that could live inside that hair. I mean, it's, what? And yet the moment we were throwing it down, doing the mashed potatoes. <laughs> we were so <laughs> embarrassing stuff. I mean, it's just, oh God, Lord of mercy, forgive us. And it made me say, so, I thought, what is it that we're doing right now that we think is so terminally hip? <laughs> As I came out one time with some new clothes my kids had bought me and I said to him, so do I look hip? And my youngest said, said, Dad, You've never looked hip, you've never been hip, and you're not hip now. <laughs> Thank you for that reality check. <laughs> and even as I say it, I show, show how unhip I am by using the word hip. You want to have an impact with your life, you want it to matter, you want it to count for time and eternity. And press on to the prize of the high callings in Christ Jesus. And that pressing on isn't saying, let's get busy and expend ourselves in energetic efforts to save the world. No. I love what William Carey once said about, he says, you want to know the will of God? All you need is a Bible and a map. <laughs> open them both up and you'll find where God wants you to be. I opened the map and you and I found Spokane, Washington. But first I opened the Bible. You want to be relevant? Your word is a light to my path. It's a lamp to my feet. Then I suddenly know how to live relevantly because I know that as I read this word and I let it speak to my life, I do it for one reason, because I'm hungering and thirsting for the experience of God in my life. And that doesn't change. Let's pray. Father, these are hopefully sobering things. I certainly don't want to, my goal is not to make people unhappy, but 
Sometimes, Lord, we have to come to grips with our own unhappiness and really discover where the real cause of it rests. We often think, Lord, that it's because the world around us doesn't think of us enough or kindly enough. And the fact of the matter is, Lord, that uh, our own thoughts are focused so much upon ourselves and about blessing ourselves that it never occurs to us, God, that you want us to bless you. You want us to have an appetite for God that's unquenchable and unsatisfying that there's never enough of in this life that causes us to think about you, causes us to read your word. It, It causes us to want to talk about you and understand your ways better. And it just causes us to do that because we have this insatiable appetite for you. Lord, you promised us those were the ones who would be filled and satisfied. Many of us in this room have known those seasons in our life where even though the world around us was swirling and storming, we found such a deep peace and comfort that in some ways we almost regret the storm ending. Help us to come to that place, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.